What are we talking about? Well, let me do let me, because last last time I didn't do the we the did an intro outro. into the end. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm going to do the intro at the at the beginning, or maybe I should do the outro at the beginning and the intro at the end. That's too crazy. People will be like, "What?" If you want to listen, if you want to read any of the stuff that we talk about today, no, future that's tense, just confusing. Then you can go to our website for the show notes if you're not in like a podcast app because in the pod, in podcast app they show up because they're they sent out with the hey outro feed. I can go home see ya <laughs> not yet oh. uh, I'm Ben Trengrove on Twitter B E N B E N T R E N G R O V E oh yeah that's how you spell it always forget Jake is Jake McMullen that's J M A C M U L L I N and I'm Jelly Bean Soup. All right, let's do this. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening and welcome to Mobile Couch. Whose phone was that? That was, was mine, but it was mine. just a buzz. It was just a buzz. I'm on do not disturb, do not disturb. It won't buzz unless it's a priority person. See, I've, I have- Maybe you're a priority person. Maybe. Have you ever thought of that, that you were priority to me, Jake? <laughs> um, I have not, actually. Yeah, I, I have the same thing. Do not disturb pretty much does nothing because anyone who ever messages me is- in my favorites list. All right. So my, I, it's like, you know, I don't actually use my favorites list at all. I use mine. Except a for lot. whitelisting people from Do Not Disturb. Like, oh, I, wow. I don't actually place calls from my favorites. Huh. I, that's my like number one go to how to make a call. So I use, the, I use it all the time. Yeah. I just use my recents because I always call the same I, people I do that all the too. time. Yeah, fair enough. Sometimes I end up calling the wrong number from the recent, though. Oh, yeah, because like, you're just off by one. Well, just multiple contact, like multiple numbers in the same contact. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they might have called you from a different number. Or just from like work and it's a weekend or... Hey, Siri. No, nah, I haven't uh, upgraded. It's just chessing. So um, apparently that's a thing. I didn't yeah. realize that. Apparently it doesn't work I had at all. My, um, my mother-in-law visiting this week. Wait, your and... mother-in-law updated? No. <laughs> so I, I was so confused. So I'd been out and I got back and she was quite confused and told me that a phone had been talking to her. <laughs> I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Is it the iPod? Yeah, it turns out I had an iPod Touch that I'd upgraded to iOS 8 charging and I didn't even know it had any charge at all. I must have plugged it in at some point after having it sitting there flat for a week or something and it had charged enough to turn on. And she must have been having a conversation with someone on the phone and said something that sounded a bit like, hey, Siri, yeah, which caused it to fire up. And want to respond. Yeah, so everything I've heard has been it just will randomly turn on during normal conversation. And then when you actually try and use the Hey Siri feature, nothing. Nothing. Well, I started play- I played with it all the rest of that night and it turned on every time I said Hey Siri. That's good. But then I'd say Hey Siri and it would turn on and like start listening to me and then it would not get anything that I said. Oh. So it'd be like, I'd be like, Hey Siri, play me some music. And she'd be like, boop, boop. And I don't know, do something completely Do you different. guys ever accidentally turn on Siri and sit there mashing the home yes. key and it never goes away? And you know what? The worst thing is I, I do it when I'm like in somewhere that I need to be quiet, <laughs> like like church, Yeah, and I'll be sitting there and all of a sudden you hear this ding, ding, when it no, comes Siri. up and you're like, quiet. And there's no way to kill it. You have to wait for it to like listen. And dumb. Yeah. Apparently there's a radar. thing now of um, like messing with people's phones from a distance by playing pre-recorded like voice prompts. So like you do the Hey Siri thing and then get them to dial some number or something. Yeah. And then you just play that audio as you're walking past and someone's phone will respond to it. Hmm. it strikes me as like a bit of a design problem that if shortly everyone's phone's going to respond to OK Google or Hey Siri. It's like could- a sort of modern day SQL injection <laughs> <It is>. by <laughs> a voice. Exactly. You don't even need to. You just walk down the street and just go, 
people are going to be walking down the street saying things like, uh, hey, Siri, drop table users, yeah. colon. <laughs> <laughs> the best uh, one I ever saw was on someone's car windshield and he did it to the um, oh. speed camera. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently it worked. <laughs> yes. Maybe it's amazing. an urban myth. I've seen photos of it. Oh, that's great. Uh, that is kind of funny. So what do we have to talk about today? Actually, no, before we get onto it, we should. I, I think we should actually send a shout out to Marco for putting us into the uh, the directory for Overcast because Overcast got shipped since the last time we recorded. So it got shipped prior to the last episode, but we haven't recorded for like three weeks by the time you hear this and possibly longer if you listen to it later in the week. Or in the future. Later in the future. <laughs> but I, I, I've like we it's been amazing. Like watching the stats, I don't even know what to do anymore. So hello to all of the new listeners who have come because you've discovered us on Overcast. And I, I hope you get what you expect, or yeah. are even pleasantly surprised. I think you'll got. I think you'll be pre- pleasantly surprised. Sorry that's, about that's our accents. My, my bias. Sure. Don't be don't be sorry about the accent. We're not American. We've got amazing accents. They, <laughs> Americans love our accent. Okay. I could pledge allegiance if that would help. I, I lived in America as a kid. I still know it. <laughs> do you? Do you really? Yeah, but apparently I'm not allowed to. So I I oh. didn't realize this. I, w- I went to primary school in in Connecticut for a year and a bit, and every day I pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic. Anyway, that thing. Yep. And then um, as an adult, I relayed this story to a friend of mine who works for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, like, you know, official. Treason. Yeah. He's like, Treason. you can't pledge allegiance to a foreign power. That's a crime. You Straight know, to jail. Like, uh, my allegiance must be to Australia. For- I can only have one queen. Don't forget the queen. Oh, yes, and the queen. So what happens for, like, people who play Americans in movies and they have to, for some reason, recite that? I think maybe there's something you can do, like, immediately afterwards to say, I didn't really mean it. Sorry. They cross their fingers behind their back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Anyway, yeah. Well, the, the, what what do we what act, do we actually have to talk about today, as opposed as opposed to um, Siri and and uh, pledging allegiance? I've just got a bunch of tiny little random things, so I don't know whether it'll feel much of an episode, but um, I can go through my list of tiny random things. Well, before got, we before we do that, why don't we talk about Swift? Because that's my first tiny some, random thing. We've got some go. Swift stuff. We've got some Swift stuff. You go first. Well, there are some Swift changes. Yeah. So um, there always as and you know what? There's going to be swift changes like the day after we release this episode. So sorry, guys. <laughs> of course, <there> are. <laughs> yes, true. So as people who are regular listeners will know, I'm working on a Swift app, um, an app where I'm using Swift. Uh, as people who are new listeners won't know, I'm working on an app where I'm using Swift. Really? Yep. I, I mean, it that. may or may not have been a good choice, uh, given how much it's changing. Like I kind of. So my thinking going in was um, I want to jump on board this new language as soon as possible. I want to learn as much about it as I can. Why not start now? Yeah. Um, and a good answer to that now might be because it's changing a lot. So, um, hmm. However, I didn't have to change that much. So, so far, I've had two rounds of Swift changes to deal with. The first one changed the array syntax, mm-hmm. and that wasn't a drama because um, – Thankfully, they don't make it so that the old syntax uh, was a compiler error. They made it so it was a warning. You could keep compiling with the old syntax. And really? Just tell you. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. That's just nice say It's changed, by the way. Um, and then the new ones, the thing that I did have to change was um, 
IB outlets when you annotated a property with the IB outlet attribute in Swift. Uh, previously, it would automatically make that property an implicitly unwrapped optional. And I'm going to attempt to explain what that is if there are people listening who aren't into Swift that much yet, because I'm still getting my head around it. Optionals in Swift are types that can be null, or sorry, are variables that can be null or might have a value. Uh, and they've got, they use the question mark so that, um, yeah, if you want to access their actual value, you've got to unwrap the optional by uh, first. So I've been using the if let syntax where I say if let my new variable name equals some property dot, you know, an optional thing. Let me think of an example. Uh, say I've got a person who has a name property that is an optional. I'll go if let name equals person dot name and then do the thing that I want to do in the event that name actually is a non-nil thing. Uh, so that's an optional. An implicitly unwrapped optional is one where um, you've used an explanation point when you declare it to say, look, uh, technically this thing can sometimes be nil because it's not given a value during initialization of the class, but it will be given a value uh, shortly after that and before I ever use it. So just trust me. Yeah, it, it turns off the compiler checking off if it has a value, basically. Exactly. So you pay the price that if you get that wrong, your app crashes. Yeah. Um, but it's I guess the, the case it's designed for is where properties always have a value. It's not really, it's not a legitimate case for them to not have a value, but they don't get their initial value in initialization. They get it like in view did load or something that happens after right. initialization. Right. Yeah. So previously, if you use the IB outlet, um, annotation, it would create that property as an implicitly unwrapped optional without actually putting the exclamation point in. So you didn't mm -hmm. see the exclamation point, but the, the cause of using the IB outlet meant that it was treated in that way. Now you have to do it explicitly. So you have to make the choice whether you actually use implicitly unwrapped optionals or you in fact make them optionals. Which means every time you use it, you have to unwrap it. So lots of ifs. Yeah, either okay. you've got to unwrap it all the time or you make it an implicitly unwrapped optional and you explicitly do it, you put the exclamation point in. In which case, uh, if you try and access it and it's not set, it'll crash. And I think I opted for that in my code. I mm. thought that um, that's what was being done before. And now I'm going to explicitly do it because um, I think that should crash. It's kind of, it's not a runtime problem. It's a design time problem. Like if I haven't hooked yeah. up my IB outlets properly when I'm running my code, then the app should crash. And, and I should. It probably shouldn't have shipped in the first place. Right, exactly. It should draw it to my <laughs> attention. I saying, should hook yeah. it up. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not something that should change. Let's yeah. say uh, one of the pragmatic programmer tips crash early, crash often. There you go. Sometimes I just do the second part of that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just one little tiny change. Um, the other thing that I don't know when it happened, but I didn't notice it until just recently, is that you can now have class or type properties, uh, static properties for oh, people right, familiar okay. with Java. So I think you always could. Okay. I, for some reason, thought Swift didn't have them, so hadn't been using them. Um, and then I came across the fact that it does. So yeah, it definitely does. Okay. I started using them. Um, and the other new thing is, um, are they called accessor? Access control? Access control. Yeah, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so we've got access control. Which is, uh, <laughs> Thank you, and moving on. Yeah, next topic. <laughs> no, anyway, um, long... Requested feature, I guess, when it first came out, everyone was like, what? 
you, everything's public. This is a bit weird. Um, and Apple Although, always so said, it's funny because I was I share that point of view. What everything's public? That's a bit weird. But that's always been the case in Objective C, and there's no way to well, really you, get around it. There, there is kind of you can like be a private. You can you privatize can, your APIs by just not giving like not. They just don't go in the header. Putting them in. At the least header. there was some form. But well, they're kind of. There was a convention by which you said, if I haven't listed this in my header, please don't send these messages to my class because I don't intend yeah, but for you still to be able to. If you did. But it would still work. Yeah. But when Swift came out, we're all kind of like, this is a modern new language. It should actually have proper access control. Oh, but there was also no way to even document that. Yeah. Because I guess we had headers and implementation. Yeah. Because we don't have that in Swift. So but anyway. Step backwards. Now we have it. So there were three, right? Yeah. Public, internal, and private. Yeah. And the default is internal. Which is a bit different. Yeah, um, it's weird. I don't really. I so don't internal really get just the... means just inside your module, basically, or yeah. namespace. So everything inside your namespace can access everything else. To internal. Right, right. So, if, so the way that the way that modules are working are that you you kind of wrap up some code in a module. It might be like your internals for your app. Yeah, uh, it, it might be like the way that. You might wrap your like your model kind of structure inside of a module, and that way you can put that module in other different yeah um, apps as well. That's right, um, or you know access it through other modules like using extensions because extensions are technically yep. modules and stuff. Yeah. So public is for defining the interface to that module. Yep. Internal is for the module itself to do its stuff between classes. Yep. And then private is for only within that class file. Yeah. Right. So I think that makes sense. I think it makes sense that internal yeah, so is the default they, um, as well. A lot of people said, where's protected? Yeah. And there was a comment, which I'm still trying to find. Um, I'm pretty sure it's a dev forum comment where they talked about they Apple decided that protected encourages bad code design. And that's all I'm going to say on it because I don't want to say something wrong. But I'll try and find a link to put in the show notes. See, I don't know. I, I, I use protected to kind of um, allow me to... Uh, create APIs that are called by subclasses, but that's it. So yeah, it's so kind you, of like you could do that public. with internal. Yeah, can, I think that's what they're can saying. You? Yeah, because internal can be accessed by anything, anything in your module. In the module. Yeah. And but to what, if you, it, what if you're subclassing it outside of your module? module. Oh, yeah, I guess. Point. Like you do that all the time, right? Yeah. Like you subclass UI view controller. You're not in UI kit. So I guess the point of view there is. Because you're public. outside your module, you'll it's only public. be able to access the public things anyway. So the only things you yeah, should be okay. able to subclass are those public methods. Yeah, I suppose. So I think, yeah. I'll yeah. try and find a link to that. It's going to be hard to find. But <laughs> I'll try and find a link to that comment. Hmm. I believe it's from Chris Latner. That's his name, right? That is his name. On the dev forums. Um, but going back to your thing with class methods or yep. class functions, um, did you guys see the blog post about re-implementing target selector in pure Swift, which a lot of people thought was probably not possible. I no, didn't. I didn't. Anyway, it's totally possible. And it comes down to the fact that Swift has the ability to curry methods. Who knows what currying a method is? I've got no idea. I had never heard of this. Is it where you put it in a stock pot and let it cook like all day? I saw some people on Twitter going, oh, Swift has curried methods. I'm so excited. And I was like, what? <laughs> anyway, a curried method is, or I think it's actually function, a curried function in Swift. Right. How it works is, say you have a function that has multiple parameters, right? We've got three of them. Yep. A curried version of that would be 
each parameter is its own function call that is chained together. So the first one, so like my function brackets first parameter dot some new function, which is returned by the first one with the second parameter dot another new function. So they keep the two together. Right. And then in the third one, you get another new function and then you use the third parameter. And now you're going to ask, why would you even do that? To be yes. honest, I have no idea. I don't get why this so is it's cool. it's kind of like chaining methods? Yeah, so apparently this is very good for functional programming and it's just another thing in the Swift toolbox. But the interesting part about it is that Swift actually curries its instance methods into class methods. So what it does is when you have an instance method, it's actually a curried form of a class method and the first parameter is the instance of that class. Which right. means yes. if you have an instance, you can just use the class type to call a method on it. So you can go overall class type dot method and actually call it kind of dynamically. And that's how the target selector thing works. Right. So what you can do is save that instance. And then normally you would do like a perform selector call or whatever. Yeah. Yep. But that's not pure Swift. You can't do that. No perform selector. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because that's Objective C. Yep. That's the rules anyway. Like you could do that. It yeah, would, yeah. It would you compile. Just extend yeah. NS object. But then what it would be doing would be not using the um, method table anymore. It would be going back to the Objective C way. Did I get that around right. the right way? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So what you can do is save a reference to the instance, save a reference to the method, and then call them as a curried function, and it works. Pure wow. Swift target selector and it's compile time checked which is better than objective c was so that's cool complex for a podcast i got a good blog post on it though and i yeah. have the link for that can one. you put the link in yes because i'd like to read that i'm just realizing there's so much to learn about swift yeah i know there is that's also what i've just realized is there's so much to learn about functional programming in general like yeah. a lot of people who really know functional programming were excited by this revelation mm. and i was just like I have no idea what that is, and I have no idea why you'd want to do that. See, I I get massively confused by functional programming. Like we we had, I think I'm going to do a course. So here in Australia, for the few listeners that are in Australia, because we've now got all sorts of new ones. That yeah. Aren't, um. Our National ICT NICTA, National ICT Australia, right? Mm-hmm. Research body. Yeah. Have um courses on functional programming. Really. Yeah. Oh, do they? Yeah, like a two oh. or three day course. See, I I just Pretty I cool. just don't understand it. I I don't like. I mean, I understand kind of the basic concept of like some of the stuff that we talked about with Ash. Yeah, that's about as far as I've gotten as well. <laughs> um, but even then, like the stuff that we talked about with Ash, like I have actually like, started using half of the time I had my eyes glazed over because I just didn't know what was going on. So I think I got all the functional bits. I was getting, I was still a bit um, stuck on the reactive parts, but um. Yeah, I've started using functional bits of Swift, like, uh, you know, at least using map and things like that. Um, but there's so much more. Like uh, the other, speaking of blog posts, there was the post on how um, Apple re-implemented assert. Yeah, in, I read that one. That was kind of interesting too. Um, it was a good one. They're putting out posts pretty frequently. Mm. Yeah, it's good. It's re- and they're all really interesting posts, like not just boring generic stuff that everyone sort of already knew like each one sort of comes out with some cool new internal fact that no one really yeah exactly well not not many people had talked about yet 
Yeah. There's a lot there. Um, I found a Wikipedia article about currying. Yeah, have you tried it has, to? It has a section called motivation. Yeah, have you read it, it though? Well, I was just about to say, I have read it and I still don't understand <laughs> exactly. why it would be used. A lot of maths. Uh, well, I'm sure that there's probably a listener out there that's, who's like yelling at yes. us going, this is why you use it. So that person Please. should go and I've tried to send read us a few an email. blog yeah, post. Apparently it's helpful with default parameters. Cool. Yeah, that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> uh, please, someone tell us why. That'd be really helpful. Yeah, actually, you should tell us. You Wikipedia is no help. Mm. Did you guys know that I set up an email for for mobile couch? Now, now you can actually email us like the old oh, school I way. Know. I thought there was just like a form on a website. So there is a form on a website, you can, and you can go to that form. It's just mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Right, right. But you can now, if you prefer, you can send an email to hello. At mobilecouch.co. So you could probably actually say, go, hey, Siri, send an email. <laughs> that might work. Still haven't upgraded I, I, my phone. I wonder how many people's phones have just kind of gone <laughs> bloop, bloop every time you do that. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good question. If you're listening to a podcast through your iPhone's ex- like speaker well, and I say, hey, Siri, send an email, will it? Well, apparently when like the Xbox first, like Xbox One was had first come out, or maybe just before, when they were doing the uh, announcements and stuff, they were talking about how you can do things like talk to your Xbox and stuff, and people's 360s were responding to to the guy on the TV screen (laughs) talking about how you can talk to your Xbox. Oh, dear. It does seem like a bit of a flaw, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. (laughs) But how are you going to fix that? Yeah, I don't know that you can. It's just like, well, I mean, eventually you probably could. No, you get it to train it to understand your unique voice print. You'd have to. It'll be like the the touch sensor sensor ID. Or sensor touch, touch, what is it? Touch Touch ID. Touch ID. It'll be uh, speak ID. And Siri will only respond when I say, hey, Siri. (laughs) But if you try it, it, she'll just be like, are you always going to talk like that? You ain't Jake. It'll have to be exactly like that. You talk talk to your phone as if it's like a... A A friend. (laughs) A a special friend, I would say, if you're using that voice. (laughs) So I I got nothing else on Swift except that... um, I I learnt again this week what a terrible programmer I am, and it's kind of got nothing to do with Swift. <laughs> Ben's chuckling because he was there. <laughs> of course he was. Retain cycles. Yeah, they're a thing. Swift doesn't fix that. I thought it might just magically no, go away and I could stop thinking about it. <laughs> yes. Apparently I've never been thinking about Swift it anyway. Isn't like, <laughs> Swift isn't like a magical language that takes oh, care of I all so the problems. I wish it was. I wish it was too. What a, imagine, imagine a future where we don't actually have to write any code. It just writes itself. Oh, no, no. I'm happy to write code. I just don't want to have to think about it. So the, <laughs> the blog post I was talking about with the target selector thing actually makes the comment that using this form of callback is better because then the memory stuff can be handled like inside the implementation of target selector rather than in the closure. Oh, right. And then it keeps the calling code clean. So maybe it'll catch on. Maybe it will. maybe I should use that and then I won't have to think about it as much. Yeah. Because I had so many retain cycles. It was kind of nice. Yeah. My code probably has heaps of them as well. But it might be worth um, Ben giving us all another tutorial about how to find them. How to find them or just how, they, how they're even created. Have we talked about that before? I think we've talked about how I think they're we created. Have. Let me try and uh, explain it because I want to know if I've actually understood it. Okay. Um, retain cycles. So it's basically where uh, these closures do it, Swift closures or Objective-C blocks, because they capture the scope. I mean, you can create a retain cycle just with normal objects as well. Sure. But um, 
I find that harder to do. Like yeah. I'd probably have noticed if I did that. Yeah, it's easy. It's very easy to do it with like blocks or yeah, with that's the bit because that I struggle with. Because you don't think about it, and exactly. it just happens. It's just writing my code, and I'm like, okay, inside this closure, I can just refer to stuff that's in scope, and it will work, and it does, and it's awesome. But if you refer to uh, self, then your closure or or a block captures that reference to self uh, and creates a strong reference to it. And if somewhere else you've got a strong reference to that closure, then you've now got a cycle between the two and they won't ever go away. Yeah, so a capture will capture any variable, not just self. Right, yes. But self is generally the one that causes all the problems. Yep. Um, And then if you've captured self in your closure and self somehow also captures that closure, now you have a cycle. Yeah. And the really obvious one is when it's like self.callback is a property. Yep. And the callback itself uses self. Yep. And the compiler, at least in Objective-C, would give you that one. It would say like, well, don't do that. Probably going to cause a cycle. Mm. The one that gets everyone is when one of self's properties, so something deeper, is capturing the closure. So say you had an array of closures. So you have self dot all my callbacks, which is an array. And inside that array is a whole bunch of closures. Compiler's not going to get that one, but it will still be a cycle. Mm. So. And the thing that got me was uh, self was a view controller that had like an image view on it that had like a five meg image in it. And, <laughs> you know, so every time I had one of these retain cycles, there's an extra five meg of memory. It just add up. Yeah. The view controller would never go away. The image view would never go away. The images would never go away. It's bad. So I've taken to kind of like, before I call a block, because I'm still not using Swift. That's fine. Won't be for a while. But I've I've taken to before I call a block or a block method or whatever, I create a weak self straight up and just use that regardless of whether or not it's going to be a. It could end up being a problem. I think I might need to take that approach. I was kind of avoiding doing it all the time because I want to understand when I need to do it and only do it when I need to. But so the, um, um, I think I fail to notice times that I should be doing it. Yeah. More often. So the bit with that strategy that gets everyone yep. is you have to check self still exists inside your block. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. So yeah. yeah, I've been doing like because most of the time I'm I'm checking to make sure that other stuff is happening anyway, so I just kind of add if weak self is not nil. Yeah, nice. That's good. And so that way I'm trying to get like I, and I haven't done that for everything, but I'm trying to do that with all my new code. Oh, you don't always have to do it. That's the trick. Yeah. Like but it's hard to tell sometimes. Sometimes I get real messy. Just basically, if your block lives inside local scope, you're probably okay. Like you can just use self as much as you want. It's when that block sticks around, yeah, mm. which it does sometimes. Like I, I, I do a lot of block-based mm. programming. I don't know if you've read static tables. And I think this is kind of anybody. anybody? <laughs> yes. No. I had a pull request. I saw. Her. Yeah. Yeah. I, saw I was too. very excited nice. about that. That's my first ever pull request that I've ever had to do. So Congrats. Thanks to Mark. You merged who, it today. Yeah, I, I merged it. Yeah. Yeah, slider preference. Nice. Yeah. I was going to say, I think um, I was bitten by the retain cycles more badly in the Swift project than I have been otherwise because um, Swift's trailing closure syntax makes me want to use closures all the time. Yeah, I agree. It's like it feels nicer. So then, how And it you... kind of feels less like I'm doing a Yeah, block. It's like it's just... So yeah, how do you find right, right, like right. how do you how do you get around that then? Like you how do you, how do you find retain cycles or how do you... Ben to do them? it for you. <laughs> so I should just send all my code to Ben in the future. Just okay. get him to stand next to you when you're programming. That might be a bit difficult. I don't know that he can stand around for all of our listeners. Okay, so two things: um, closures in Swift have capture lists, which is a new concept. 
Okay. And so it just saves you a line. So you, instead of above the closure or the block, yep. you used to have to write underscore underscore weak type of self, all of that jazz. Mm-hmm. Now inside the closure, as part of the parameter list, so the variables you're passing in, you can yep. say like, this is weak. And so you can oh. say unknown self is the common one or weak self because unknown self just crashes straight away Right at the moment. I'm sure they'll fix it. But yeah, you can just say weak self. And now self inside your closure is weak. Which is really cool. It saves cool. a lot of writing. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. Yeah. Um, and then, okay, so now you've followed the steps and you've still got a cycle somewhere or you suspect you've got a cycle. The way to find them is with instruments. Yep. Um, through a technique called heap shot analysis, which I actually have talked about on the show before. Yeah, you have. I, I remember, remember that. Now. Yeah, but basically... I'll find the episode and... Basically, a quick rundown of it is you find where you think the cycle is mm-hmm. and you could just do it to like every view controller in your app really. But what you do is you have to repeat the same thing over and over again. So you start at, say, the home screen. You open a view controller. You do the task you think is quite memory intensive. You let it finish, and then you close that view controller. Then you click a button in um, instruments called Mark Generation. Yep. And what that does is in between every generation, it shows you the variables that were created and are still living between generations. So uh, when you do it multiple times, you'll see each generation... See has some stuff left over. In the yep. perfect case, you can get it to go to zero, absolutely yep. zero objects. It's quite hard in practice. Um, and sometimes you get messed up by some internal thing that's not behaving. Yep. So sometimes you have to deal with five kilobytes sticking around. But you'll find if you've got retained cycles, you've probably got whole megabytes sticking around. Yeah, I had many megabytes. See, I had a, I had a problem when I was developing static tables. Like when I was putting it together, um, I had a problem with one of the one of the preference things because there's a preference with static tables where you can add a row uh, to your your data source and it would it would generate like a it would give you the ability to have like a, a essentially what is a drop down menu where mm-hmm. it goes to a new screen so it goes to a new view controller with a a list of options and you can tap the one that you want and it, that one gets selected right I was having a problem where that view controller that's created dynamically mm-hmm. would stick around and you'd leave and you'd come back and it'd get created again. Yep. And you'd leave and you'd come back and that's get a, created again. That's a retain cycle. Um, and so... Did you find I think, it? Yeah, I, I found it eventually. Like I found it... I, I didn't use HeapShot. What I ended up doing was I would... I noticed it because I was looking at the at the little... Um, the graphs that graph, you get the allocations get, graph well you, you get it in you get it in xcode. in the xcode mm. sidebar thing right and so i was noticing that it was increasing always going up and never yeah. coming down by the same amount um which is what you want or at yeah. least that's what i've heard you want <laughs> <laughs> correct <laughs> you should see generally peaks speaking. and troughs like yeah. a square wave yeah so it should go up like up when you've allocated something new and then it should go back to where you were yes uh and so that wasn't happening and so i was trying to find it and eventually what i ended up doing was i would run through uh i would use allocations that's tool. the correct tool yeah yeah. yeah yeah and so i'd go through and i'd find i would find the object that like the class name that i would was looking for and i would count the references until it that's until it. I so, to get okay back to cool zero. so what you've done is you've just manually done the first step of heapshot analysis right so heapshot would have told you that this object is sticking around you've just realized that yourself yeah and then what you can do is do what you did click it look at the memory address and it will show you all the retains and all the releases on that yeah address problem is it doesn't tell you exactly which one's still holding on to it you sort of yeah. got to go through and you try and pair them out. up um, I think I, I eventually found it, and yeah. obviously, I, I like I wasn't going to ship the code until I, I until I did. Um, but it was, I mean, it was tricky, but it was like it was 
What was it? Do you remember? I feel like it was the 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 view itself, like the view control that was generated was holding onto the like it had a reference to the cell or okay. the row or something like that. Or maybe it had a reference to the data source, which also then had a reference to the cell, which had a reference to the view yeah, controller. So you had a, like, and so it was like multiple this, step one. It was the harder ones. Yeah, it wasn't like this thing that where it was like the view Two controller holding was onto each doing other? a row and you probably had it like a, a circle control. of objects. Yeah. That's the harder one to yeah. find. So when multiple things, like it's not just a straight, I but hold I on to you and you hold on to me. There's like something in between. I found it eventually and I'm pretty sure one of the commits is like me going, yes, I found this. <laughs> yeah. The one to watch out for in Objective-C, which I spent honestly three days trying to find one once, and it was using an instance variable in a block. So it was a property, and they were using the instance variable that backs that property inside a block. Mm-hmm. Because the instance variable is part of self, it just like invisibly captures self. Mm. And the instance variable also wasn't marked with an underscore, so it was hard to spot that it was actually a property. Um, and Swift fixes that. You can't do that anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, it forces you to write self dot inside a closure. You cannot. Do you actually have to write self? Because I think I've seen a shorthand for Swift syntax where you just write dot. Dot is for enums, right? Right. Okay. Does that work? It might work for. Um, I, I've just seen it and go, hmm. The I dot never is be when that. it can infer the type, at least that's where I've seen it, of the enum. Right. So yeah. you don't have to give the whole enum's name and you then just dot, dot the value. You just say dot the value, yeah. which is cool. I like that too. Lots of things in Swift. I like that. Hmm. No, I'm looking forward to trying out Swift and playing with it a bit. I'm kind of glad that I've started using it already because I feel like even having made that choice to dive right in, I'm not keeping up with, like, I'm not learning yeah. all of the new stuff that there is to know as quickly as it is available to know about. Yeah, see, I don't know. Like, I feel like that even if you jump in after, like, Swift is... Bedded down a bit. Yeah, like because when iOS 8 ships and everybody's yeah. able to ship Swift apps, like it's going to be a lot harder for them to just change things on the fly like that. Yeah. Right? And so Swift is kind of going to have been released as a language as opposed mm. to being in beta, yeah, which exactly. is basically yeah. what it is yeah. now. Yeah. I feel like even if you jump in after that, like it's it's going like you're still going to be one of the very few people who know yeah. Swift from essentially day dot. And you'll probably have a lot more resources. Speaking of which, there's a new book. I bought a new Swift book. Yeah? Uh, Swift. Oh, I should remember the name of it, shouldn't I? Who wrote it? I should remember that too. <laughs> I am uh, dubious of Swift books because, I mean, the official one was Lots written by... Lots of people are writing them at the moment. Yeah, but like everyone's writing, everyone really has the same amount of experience, mm. unless you're internal, and even then. So, I mean, the official one's out. It's pretty comprehensive. What do these one extra ones add? Uh, so, what this add? one has added for me so far is um, a different style. Um, and I'm trying to find. It. While you do that, speaking of different style, I noticed a Swift blog today. Named one of its optionals, so it has an error, which is an optional. And they called that variable error maybe. Like, not like, discuss. <laughs> I, I don't like that. <laughs> so it's an optional. So I kind of, I kind in of the like variable it. name, they called it maybe. maybe. I, at I first I was like, no. huh. And then I was like, hmm. They could, why didn't they call it optional error? Yeah, I don't Might know. Might be an error. Could be an error. See that that strikes that's, me the same maybe that's as what they do. like as the same as like you know how some Objective C stuff has like an array. I like yeah, an I array. like that too. <laughs> I don't like that. I like to name my 
things what they are. But it's meant to. Objective I mean, C is meant to read like a sentence, right? Yeah. Uh, perform selector on an array. Yeah, but not see, array. I, but <laughs> I would have like perform sel- selector on objects, which reads better than an array, which tells you nothing about what's actually yep. in it. See, I I like to name my 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 things as to what they are, not as to what they their data type, their type, which is kind of yeah, you're right. Generally, that's not kind of pointless, mm. really. Mm. I can't find this book. <laughs> I'm so to... glad you brought it up. Yeah, we'll have to uh, follow up. But um, yeah, I did. It's got a more relaxed conversational style. Yeah, okay. It doesn't dive straight into all of the. At least had the, the Apple it's one like had some. Comedic... Leads me in slowly. We'll yeah. put the link to it in the show notes because yeah, I'm sure you'll find it. I will later. dig it out. At least the Apple one had some sort of comedic relief in it. They saw in jokes, which is very, that's yeah, very like, conversational. And then the code they had, like you know, pop culture references, and and then there'd be a sentence after that was like, "Ha! Ah, do you see what I did there? Do you see what I did there?" Yep, lolcat. <laughs> <laughs> there was no gifts. I was very disappointed. No, there wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lots of emoji. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, they love their emoji. Yeah. No, that's good. I like emoji too. I haven't actually used any in code yet. I've got to find a reason to. I'm totally I have start not using either. Them. I cannot think of a. Good I use them as well. I mean, I already use them when I'm developing stuff in as placeholder icons. Oh right. Yeah. If you there run you like that, uh, somebody actually pointed this out because I left one in for static tables with the example app. Where the icon for the preferences area oh, yeah. is a little wrench. Okay. Yeah. Emoji wrench. Nice. That's cool. I like that strategy. I think I've never used good. that before. I'm gonna do that. I can't always find like the appropriate icon, but I can at just, least just throw something in, in there. It's yeah. like I, it's not something I ship with, obviously. I've never I've never shipped an actual app with yeah. an emoji icon, but maybe well, I should. Hmm. I think that'd be good in Swift uh, as um enum like Field names. <laughs> Especially if you can have like an enum for like your mood today. Yeah, mood dot <laughs> pile of poo. Mood dot <laughs> debatable. Yeah. Still not convinced because they're so hard to type. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's a very good maybe point. if they autocomplete nicely. So I use I, guess a, they I use a text shortcut for my emojis. Right. So but I that have involved like, you setting that up, right? Well, yeah, but I mostly have got them set up for things like. You know the standard emoticon mm-hmm. style thing, although it always trips me up when I want to, like when I'm doing it, typing at a computer that doesn't, or typing in something that doesn't use emojis, yeah, okay. and that thro- that throws me because yeah. it'll I'll suddenly I'll be like, why? Actually, there's a problem with my work computer at the moment because um, my text shortcuts aren't being oh, synced right. by iCloud. Thanks, iCloud. I love you, iCloud. Mm. <sighs> iCloud. Hey, speaking of enums, I did find a. Like I'm, do, I'm trying out all of these weird things in Swift, and I've got no idea if any of them are a good idea or not. But um, I was refactoring some code the other day where I littered it with string literals, which I never feel good about. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to pull these out. And in Objective C, I kind of had gotten into this practice of having like a constants file, yep, somewhere, and I just list all my constants. And I thought, okay, I'll do something similar in Swift. And I'm like, hang on, Swift has all these other structures that you can do things like. Objective C had enums, but they they were all based based on in, ints, right? Like yep, or a primitive or type. A primitive type, yeah. Mm. Whereas uh, Swift, you can use strings or complex types in mm-hmm. your enums. So I'm like, hey, I should put all of the kind of 
con- string literals that I need for a particular class. Cool. I think I like within it. an enum for that class. So like I was writing this class which interacts with a web service, and I came up with an enum called URLs uh, or URL endpoints sort of thing, and that's where all the string literals were. So I could just go URLs dot whatever. The only downside is to get the actual string bit, you got to call raw value. So you got to go, oh. you know, whatever dot field dot raw value. Right. It's kind of like. Mm. What about um, static properties or class properties? I was thinking Java style. So you have your constants class. Yeah. And it's full of static instance, not instance. Yeah. Okay. Static properties. That'd work. The thing I quite liked about the enum is I could declare it within the class. Or like, so the, the stuff yeah. that is kind of internal to this class is declared in a structure that's contained that's within cool. the class. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I remember past Jake who was com- com- completely confused by when you would use enum in class. Structs yep. and- yeah, so I'm getting there by just doing it right and trying stuff out going, does this make sense to me? I, I love that that's your, your t- like, I can understand now your your progress like with, through, through a thing. You First of all, you're completely confused by when you would even use that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you find out, like you, you realize well, how, well, like how and when you would use You've got that. to get to the bit where I overuse it. And then and I'm like, I'm going to use this everywhere. Everything's going to be an enum. <laughs> and then I pull back a little I bit. Don't think go, no, that's a, see, I don't right. think that that's a bad, a bad approach to it, right? Because what you're doing is you're feeling it out. Hmm. I do the same thing. I, I don't necessarily like. I don't. I don't disagree with it. I just think it's funny that we 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 kind of see these steps with you. It's like it's not something that I ever see anywhere else. I go through sort of fashions or phases where I stick to one sort of pattern and just see it everywhere. Yeah. And then it sort of goes out of fashion in my head and I don't like it anymore. <laughs> I switch to a I new do, I pattern. Do I do that. <laughs> you can kind of tell what code you've written at what point in time by what patterns you're yeah. using and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I do that as well. For better or for worse. That's funny. So I'm trying to I'm trying to uh develop a new pattern, a new practice, a new habit. Oh. Test driven development. Oh, oh cool. Is it working? Oh. I wrote some tests. Yeah, I can't. I just can't get Ex- into it either. So Xcode six has got some cool new stuff. I think it's new in Xcode six. Yeah, asynchronous testing. Yeah, asynchronous testing. Yep. Yeah, okay. allowed to talk about it. Okay, sure. Okay. Um, not that I'm getting. I mean, I was. I'm. I'm all for talking. I about think things. the trick is you can't give a review though, so we can't say if it's good or bad. <laughs> if I understood that correctly. Okay. <laughs> right. So there's some stuff which may or may not be awesome. <laughs> um, one of the things, and maybe this is not new, but this was new to me, the idea of being able to run a single unit test just by clicking on a little play button in the kind of gutter. Not new. Gutter. That's cool. That is cool. Not new. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of nice. It's like it's like being able to exercise just a tiny little bit of your code. Yeah. Kind of without having to fire up everything all at once. You just have this little one method that you're writing. There's a lot exercise. of shortcut keys for it as well. you got like run last test, run last failed test, and stuff like that. Run the test I'm in. There's heaps of them. I don't know them. So I've never been able to get the hang of it. Like, I don't really, I don't even think I understand it pro- correctly. As in the whole principle? No, I understand the principle of why you would use test-driven development. I don't necessarily think I understand how I would go about implementing it. Yeah, so I'm starting to get it because I'm trying to get into it and failing. But you test the public interface to your class whereas i used to try and test everything and that was just so overwhelming you only have to test the public interface and your class itself is a black box and for the testing at least right 
Well, yes. it would be a, because it's basically running tests like you would on, a, like you would if it was a public API, right? And like yeah, that's, that's yeah. The, kind of the point. I think one of the challenges I've found in the past is that, um, and I still struggle with this. A lot of the code that I'm writing runs within the context of an app that has a whole heap of infrastructure around it. Mm. Like you've got your app delicate, you've got, you know, in some cases a whole core data stack, you've got yep. maybe network services it's dealing with, and and all of this. And so to test, you know, in order for one part of the app to work, all of that has got to be operating in concert. All of the all of the reactive developers right now are telling, uh, are yelling at you, going, "Why you should be writing without state?" Yes, I know. Yeah, <laughs> strongly <laughs> coupled. Um, and so test, I guess one of the side effects of test-driven development is you've got to pull things apart so that you can test them in isolation of one it, another. It encourages. Modular design. Right. right. But I think sometimes I feel like it covers just modular design too much in the sense that you end up separating things purely for, to make testing them easier. Mm-hmm. And the result is that using them in code is more difficult because you've got to hook them all back together again. Yes. Um, you can. The other thing is you're meant to mock some things out. Yeah. And then you need something like dependency injection to satisfy your mocked out things so yeah yeah you can anyway so i kind of go back and forth with the extremes of this um but something that i've been playing with in xcode 6 which is which is nice and is making me want to write more tests that's not a review it's okay (laughs) (laughs) is um is asynchronous testing and it's kind of weird because it means that i don't necessarily have to pull things apart so i can actually test stuff that you know say pull queries the network and get something back. So, so less of a unit test and now more of a like integration test. So an asynchronous test. test is just the ability to run asynchronous code. Was that not possible before? Or is it that I can run multiple tests at the same time? Uh, no, so it's the ability to run asynchronous code, to have a single unit test mm-hmm. that tests your asynchronous code. Right. I never got that before. I just assumed it was like, yeah, yeah I can run all my tests at the same time now and speed up my testing. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> a side effect of that? I don't know. No, so what it is is, um, so say, for example, you had uh, like some code basically f- queries, um, sends a get request to a URL, gets back some data, parses it. Mm-hmm. That's what you're testing. Um, the problem with that is that the test cases used to have to be synchronous code. So, you, so they a would, single method that would execute. They would complete, basically. Yeah, so basically you would write your code, you'd start the request, and before the request came back, your test method would be finished. Yep. And so what do you the, do? What do you do? <laughs> you, nothing. So now the asynchronous testing is basically, um, it's it's really nice. It's really, really nice and it's simple. Um, basically, you create a uh, test expectation. So that's a little object to describe what you're expecting to happen. Um, you can, by calling, uh, it, there's a method on XC test. Uh, sorry, on yeah, on XC test. There's a method called um, expectation with description. And so you just give it a string to describe what it is. Um, so say mine might be get get remote data. Um, then in the completion block, so you, then you, you exercise your APIs you normally would, like you make the request mm-hmm. and you write a completion handler or whatever, a closure to pass the data when it comes back. Um, and then when you're ready to f- sort of, you've finished doing whatever you're doing with that. Um, you call fulfill on the expectation. So to say this expectation's now been fulfilled because I managed to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. And then to kick the whole thing off or to stop your um 
synchronous test case from actually finishing at that point. You then call wait for expectations with timeout. And so cool. you give it a timeout that it should wait for. So you can say, wait five seconds. Um, and then the test case will run. It will hit that wait for expectations with timeout and just sit there waiting. Um, and then it'll wait for however long you've told it to. If during that time your asynchronous code finishes and you fulfill all of the expectations you'd set, then your test case will pass and it'll be good. Um, nice. If you hit the timeout without having fulfilled your expectations, it'll fail. I think I understood that. But just in case... Can you repeat it all again? Because I wasn't listening. <laughs> no. I'll put a link in the show notes. That is a reference, just for the side note. Um, <laughs> no, I, I what think there's a reference to. I didn't get Lego that movie. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. It it was too. I get yeah, it now. Yeah, good. Um, so, uh, but I think I think the the, the pro- part of the, my problem with test driven development, I think, is that every time I try to like. I try to understand it or try to listen to something or try to read something. Just, I, your eyes glaze my over. just eyes glaze over and I'm like You just gotta try doing it. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's the thing. I'm gonna have to write something. There's some stuff that I think it makes start there. much more sense than others. Like if you've got any complexity in an algorithm you're doing, I think it makes more sense to test. Yeah. I really like it for parsing stuff. I've seen it pretty good for that. Like you get in some JSON and you ex- like it has a re- very obvious expectation what you're going to get out of that JSON. Yeah, sure. And I've written tests for that before and had success where it's like found things that I wouldn't have found unless, I don't know, something went wrong, like way later down the track and it just instantly failed. And I was like, what? So how would you write a test? Like sometimes I've written, like I've written methods where it does nothing. Like, Are they public? Yeah. Or are they internal? Hang well, on, no, you've written a method that does nothing. Yeah, so what does it, what does it do? <laughs> no, you've got a problem well, it, there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, you need to put the code in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem, right? Okay. No, I've done I've done methods that don't like ha- like so so. I'm going to keep on bringing up static tables because this is the most recent thing that I've developed. So static tables in static rows and static sections. There's a method that you can call called set needs reload you don't pass anything to it you just call the method it's like it's like the layer method where you tell the view that you need to be laid out again and then what does it do and then so that sets an internal flag to say that it needs relaying out actually i don't even think it does that i think it just passes the passes the call up the chain until it gets to the data Mm -hmm. source or the table view implementation actually the data source and the data source calls a delegate method and the delegate method is where you would not where you write an implementation that refreshes the that row or that section mm. does the does the actual okay. reload so you could test that with this async testing right you could set an expectation which is uh delegate is asked to reload yeah you could then create an instance of your thing that you need to say set needs reload yeah. on yeah assign it the delegate yeah. Implement the delegate method. Right. In your implementation of the delegate method, you would fulfill the expectation. Right. Yeah? Yeah. And then in your test case, you'd say, uh, wait for expectations with timeout. And what you'd be testing is that when you call set needs reload, yeah. it will actually pass that on to the appropriate delegate method. Right. And it kind of seems like a little bit weird. Like, why would you test that? That's, that's what it does. It's going to either do it or not. It's mm. really obvious if it's not doing mm. it. And I think that, that, I struggle with that as well. It's like I'm writing all of this code just to test basic stuff that I know will know immediately whether it works or not without ne- necessarily needing a test. 
Um, and I think when I'm, because as I say, I go back and forth. When I'm in a like a pro test driven development mood, I'm like, no, but the thing that's really nice about it is um you write the test first. So it allows you to think a little bit through the kind of API you want your class to have. Yeah. Because okay. you like write you write calling code before you write the implementation. See, I do that anyway. I but right. I, I write I, rather than writing an like a test implementation, I write an implementation that actually is going to do the thing that I want it to do. No, no so you do the same, but before you write that implementation, you write a test that's gonna use it. But but my implementation does that. No, okay. All right. So you write like calling code. So first. here's here's how I wrote write an API, right? So what I'll do is I'll figure out what I'm trying to achieve. Yep. And then I'll write the calling code. Yep. So I'll write a I'll I'll write stuff that will actually do what I want. And obviously it's going to break because none of those methods exist yet. Yeah. Then what I will do is I'll go through and I'll implement empty versions of those methods and or properties. Yes. Dub them out. Yep. So they just blank. They'll do nothing. So now my code will build. Yeah. Because everything calls everything and everything is fine. It yeah. just repeat it like when I need to re- you know return an ob- an item I'll just return like nil or zero or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh and then you go through I and- start building out my stuff with the things that are obvious first and then the things that like the the smallest level stuff, and then I just build it out, and yeah. that's how I build everything. Like that's how I build everything. So test driven development is not that different. It's just that one. So one of the benefits is um the calling code is in the context of a test case, so it doesn't need as much infrastructure, yeah. and you can run it more quickly. Yeah. So you just have to nice. click a tiny little button in the gutter, and it runs, as opposed to having to like fire up the full app and wait for everything to load. Also, and it tells navigate you through your thing. It automatically tells you if it's working, whereas you probably chuck a breakpoint in to see if it worked. Only, only if I like, if I can't seem to get the implementation, yeah, yeah, happening the way that I think it should be happening. The other thing I think that we're missing here is that it's for future jelly, right? Yes, yes, future jelly it tells is you future very jelly inadvertently break something. Yeah. Like in a year, when you've forgotten how you implemented this entire thing, which God, in happens. a year it's not going to compile because they will have changed the Swift syntax four times. So, and then you'll update <laughs> the app and not realize you broke everything. That's true. And then there you go. Your test will tell you. The other thing I've found it useful for is. Sometimes if I'm writing a new class, like that's very separate to my app, it's not really used yet. I'll just chuck a call to it in the app delegate and then I'll just run my app and see if it works. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, I've done that. That's like screaming out for testing because that call from the app delegate should be in a test class. Yeah. But you're lazy and just chuck it in the app delegate and delete it when it works, which I do all the time. Look, I'm not saying that I shouldn't (laughs) do test-driven development. I'm just saying that I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I think think I'm not alone in that, by the way. There's so many people. Every new new project I start, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start with the tests on this one. And then I write some and I'm like, this is awesome. I'm loving this. And then I actually get into having to get work done and get And then the deadlines start creeping up. And then I'm like, oh, screw this. My tests keep failing. But I know that the app's working right because it's like things have changed. I haven't gone and changed the tests. And I'm like, yeah. I think that's I think that's part of the problem with like trying to do new things with client based work. I, I don't I don't know. I'm I'm well and truly against the idea of like learning new stuff on on a client on a client job. I generally pick one thing to try and this is my focus for this new project. So every mm. project I go in the last project I wasn't happy with. So it's not necessarily learning a new thing, it's just focusing on something I know I didn't do as well as I should have in the last project. Yeah, but test-driven development is a very big thing. 
Like it's not a small thing. So what what you're essentially doing is trying to. I feel like it's trying to bite off more than you can chew. I don't think so. Um, like if you're if you're still just getting the getting the grasp on it, like are you going to be able to like you're going to end up with the problem where you you kind of get you suddenly get lumped with you need to get this done you need to get this done yes, you've, and, you've, and because you've just been feeling it out yep. it's kind of playing and you're just yep. enjoying your time in the little kiddie pool and then you realize that you still don't know how to swim yeah oh yeah so tests- the, the risk is that you don't end up writing as much as many tests and you don't have as good test coverage and also yeah. all the test driven development like lovers out there screaming at you saying that test driven development is actually faster because it finds problems sooner and all of yeah, that. I like. I can. I can completely understand that. We've got a lot of people it's, yelling at us today. Yeah, don't we? It saves your clients <laughs> money in the long run because they I, have I a more that robust that's possibly code the, base. Probably the case, but I think I, I feel like like if you don't know what you're doing, you're not really helping anyone. You're better off like you're better off knowing what you're doing than not because you're essentially going to be doing what I just said. Like you're, you're splashing around in a tiny little kiddie pool and you're like, you're not really. I don't know that I agree. Like, I mean, learning about how to write good tests. I don't think it necessarily has that much bearing on the, in a negative way on the code that is under test. You know what I mean? Like if, if, if say I agree with your premise and I am splashing about in my, kiddie pool in mm-hmm. terms of writing my unit tests mm-hmm. i don't think that the code that's under test is necessarily the worst for it I think no, of that, course not yeah so but like, where's but, the harm well i'm I, I my only my only consideration here is that because you're learning how to do something that is by all means quite a large thing like it's not like you you're trying to figure out how to how do you write tests how is the best way to implement tests and that takes time to learn uh, is, yeah. is the time that you're spending on learning that stuff better used spending like working on the client based stuff and then learning how to do your tests at some yeah, other stage? Yeah, so I I can't separate the two, right? Like when I'm writing code, I'm simultaneously being productive and learning new stuff. And if I'm not learning new stuff, then I'm neglecting my skills. And if I'm not being productive, I'm not getting the stuff done that I need to get done. So yeah, I kind of I try and do both at once. Maybe that's not always. Works I'm the same. Well, but... I definitely try and learn things every, yeah, every new project or even every new class. I'll like. Make oh, sure I mean, I'm... don't like. I learn stuff. Like, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that I don't learn things, but I don't. Uh, I mean, to be fair, like these days, I don't really have a choice in what I do as far as client-based work because it's not my choice anymore. Given that I now have a regular schmuck job, <laughs> uh, I think it's a mix, right? There's some. Work. There's some projects where you know, okay, like, this is not the time. This is not the time. I just got to yeah. get this done, and it's very similar ground. So it's, it's there's no benefit to trying a, a different technique. But then there's other projects where you're like, okay, this is an opportunity to use auto layout for the first time, or this is an opportunity to right. use core data. I think for the first yeah, time, it depends on the, the technology. To- I can see your point. Maybe trying to write the entire app in functional programming style, like. Because that's a radical change. They have mm. no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. So they're probably trying to implement an entire client app in a completely different methodology. Probably not a good idea. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, obviously, there's a level to it. Like, I, I mean, I'm perfectly happy to like learn something small and new on a, on, on a client app if it because sometimes an app is going to demand it. 
Mm. I mean, for instance, one of the things that I'm going to be doing, and it's not really a client app, but in GIF wrapped, I'm going to be implementing a um, a uh, custom layout for a collection view, which I've oh, never cool. done before. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be doing that soon. And a custom keyboard, right? <laughs> Everybody wants a custom keyboard. Yeah, do the keyboard, man. <laughs> I really want the keyboard. I'm not doing any AOS 8 stuff at this point in time. I, that will be happening later when I have a bit more I time. I mean, you've done a Quayboard before, so... Now you can do a keyboard. Mm. <laughs> it's still pronounced keyboard. You could even call it. You could have called it a gift board. A gift board? No. Yeah, you could call it anything. Just do it. <laughs> do it. There will be an update coming at some stage, which has iOS eight functionality. But aren't you in like a at this point a fight to the death with some other GIF app at the moment? Is really? it, I'm not isn't in a, fight it a rush to, to see who can do the keyboard? There's GIF another keyboard one. The first. I don't think he. I don't know. Do you want to mention them, or is that like giving a there shout is, out? I, uh, there is a there is a GIF app that is out there now that has been released in the last couple of weeks, July. I think it came out in some point in July. Uh, anyway, because uh, I looked at it, I looked at the version history. Um, <laughs> it is essentially the search part of my app mm. with some additional features related to the search part of my app. The search uh, part where, of your app is by far the most used part yeah, in terms of my I, use. I bet they're going to have a GIF keyboard. That's all I'm saying. Maybe. Can you search from is, within is that, a keyboard? Uh, well, how would you how would you write a search term? Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> like that's kind of. I, I don't know. Like I mean, the the only thing that you could do is have the have like the what they have, which is the the categories. But then you'd have to wait for it to come back, and the search is slow, and that's not really their fault. That's not really the app's fault. That's um, Giffy's fault. Jiffy's fault. I want to pronounce it, but um, yeah, what was I talking about? I can't remember. Neither. I'm implementing a an a custom custom collection, view custom collection view layout. Oh, that's cool. right. Uh, which is going to be uh in a future release, probably not the next one because the next one come is releasing on Wednesday. What are you What are you doing? How are you laying it out? That's custom. Am I allowed to trade put? secret? Trade secret. Uh, it will be known when it is known. Okay. Um, I know. You probably know, I probably have told you before, but I'm not going to announce it on a show that is going to be heard by the whole entire world. Thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. Millions. (laughs) I'm just, I'm stoked at the idea that there's thousands. (laughs) I'm freaked out, but anyway. It's the end end of the episode. I'm sure they're actually tuned out by now. They're probably, they're They're like on. Yeah, they're like, who are these guys? Um, But I've been like, I'm going to be implementing that. That's going to be something that I'm going to be learning. Cool. Perfectly happy to do that because it's not a huge thing. It's going to take me. Next app time. I'm going to do is going to be a Swift app where I use Sprite Kit <laughs> and SceneKit and, just, and UI Dynamics. And you're going to re-implement. I feel like that. I feel like. And I'm going to do it all in functional programming. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you're going to write your own table view. Yep. Just why not? Apparently Sprite Kit is really good to like smash out a game really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Great. Coco City is just as good though. Because they're almost identical. Anyway. And Cocos 2D is potentially cross-platform. Yes, Cocos 2D is cross-platform. Speaking of cross-platform. Well, sorry. Really? Really? Yes, yeah, it's just a quickie. Uh, There's now a cross-platform iBeacon. Oh, Alt Beacon. Alt Beacon. It's worth checking so out. So not iBeacon, then just Beacon. Alt Beacon, yeah. Because Alt. Remember that, you, know, but you said iBeacon. You I said did. there's a cross-platform iBeacon. And I chose that word because uh, Alt Beacon has been proposed as a cross-platform standard for a Bluetooth low-energy beacon uh, by Radius Networks, who had written 
some Android libraries for detecting and responding to iBeacons and then pulled their Android libraries, perhaps because someone asked them to. I don't really know the full story behind it. But anyway, now they have written a proposed standard for a uh, cross-platform unencumbered beacon. Yeah, so I had heard that there was some con- something or other. Hand movements? Yeah. Suggesting there, there, there intrigue? Was, there was, there'd been this kind of kerfuffle about yeah, poten- about iBeacon specifically. behind closed doors. Uh, that like that may or may not be rumour uh, that that Apple was getting a bit um, ramped up about the whole thing. Yeah. But I don't know the details, so I'm not going to... So I think, as far as I understand, iBeacon as a trademark mm. um, is a standard Apple's proposed, mm-hmm. and your beacons are produced under license from Apple, that if you want to use the iBeacon yes, brand, that's you have the to idea. sign up as a made-for-iPhone licensee, yes. which case you're given the spec and you can make a hardware beacon that conforms to it. I think Radius Network's are part of that because they sell beacons that are branded mm-hmm. as iBeacon. Um, and simultaneously, they had software libraries available for Android that would allow you right. to detect these Bluetooth Low Energy iBeacons on Android devices. Which makes sense. And I guess Apple's maybe not that interested in... I kind of had hoped when they proposed this that they were like, this was their gift to the yeah, mobile industry. It's like, spec. we're just going to do... We think this is a good idea. Everyone should do it. Because um, it's really not that hard. Right. And it's yeah. not necessarily that... I mean, basically, the novel thing was Bluetooth low energy devices are out there and they have all these advertising data that you can detect when you wander past. Um, their identifiers change depending on who's listing as a security mechanism. Why don't we give them all a pers- optional persistent identifier so people can, you know... Yeah, great idea. Look for certain ones. Um, I'm sure Apple weren't the only people with that idea. And um, anyway, Alt Beacon is kind of that as well. I think there's some tech, some slight technical differences between an iBeacon and an Alt Beacon, but basically same idea. It's a Bluetooth low energy device that in its advertising data includes an identifier you can look for and then respond to. Um, and you could potentially implement Alt Beacons on iOS as well as Android because uh, you could use the core Bluetooth stack to just scan for Bluetooth. And I'm sure so, but you have them. to do them separately, though. You can't just use the built-in stuff, though. No, the built-in stuff will only work with iBeacons. Um, if you wanted mm. to respond to alt beacons as well, you'd need to write a separate thing that looked for used the lower-level core Bluetooth. Mm. Well, I'd say they'd provide a library. Yeah, somebody would be part of the for it. Yeah. whole alt beacon movement yeah. would be making but it But I think it's worth use. keeping an eye on. Um, so far, all the iBeacon stuff we've done has been iOS, but certainly people have been asking, will this work with Android? It's like, well, yes, in principle. I don't think there are as many Android devices that have Bluetooth low energy chipsets in them. Oh, the but, big name ones do. Yeah. Um, mm. And one other tiny thing <laughs> that's exciting in my world is I think I've mentioned in a long distant past episode, uh, Mood Stocks, a natural image recognition Yeah, this is yeah. exciting. Um, it's an awesome library. I feel like I'm giving this is a trade secret. Uh, we've been using Moodstocks on a bunch of projects because it's awesome. It's so easy to use. Yeah, and it's it's what it is is natural image recognition. So you train you train the library to be able to recognize an image, and then you've got an iOS library where you use this your device's camera, and if you point it at that same image, it'll tell you which image it is. And so you can train it with hundreds or thousands of images, and it will and it does the recognition on device, so it's really really fast. And then you can do stuff in response to having recognized something. Um, anyway, they've just changed their pricing model. So uh, it's now incre- much, much cheaper than it was. 
like it used to be you had to pay for every scan. So every time you rec- every image recognition event yep. was like a separate thing that cost. And now it's right. un- unlimited scans on all their plans. It's actually nice. one million. They say unlimited with oh. an asterisk. Oh, right. One of those God things. Damn it. One million isn't unlimited. No, it's still pretty good though. One million would have cost so much money in the old plan that it's effectively what they're saying. So I think unlimited. I'm going to now use Bootstocks in everything. If I wasn't already. Even things that don't even need image recognition. Yeah, you should have it in GIF wrapped. I'm putting it in GIF wrapped. Yeah. Just have an Easter egg that if you point your phone at a, a picture of a kitten, you'll get an animated GIF of a kitten. Except that that's not what Moostox does. Because <laughs> you would have to enroll every picture of kittens. No, a specific kitten. Oh, okay. A specific picture of a kitten. It'd be like all of your users could be on a hunt for which kitten picture triggers the special... Yeah, I think I think there might be like smaller Easter eggs that don't require dependencies that I could implement in my code that wouldn't take as much. It's CocoaPod for it. It's very easy. It is yeah. very easy. Like three lines. Yeah. Yes. You can make it say if you look at the GIF rep logo, you get like fun and excitement. I have other I have other Easter eggs. Oh really? I don't need I don't need that. That's it. Throw my idea in my face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just take it and run with it myself. Uh, that's it. That's all I got. Okay, good. Am I allowed to finish the episode now? <laughs> One more thing. All oh, right, of course. No, nothing else. So, if you would like to read any of the things that we talked about today, or read about them, or read about the things that inspired the things that we talked about today, you can go to our website and check out the show notes. The website is mobilecouch.co forward slash thirty seven because that's the number of the episode. You can also look in your show notes on your podcast app, which may or may not be overcast. There is a very strong likelihood that it is. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do that as well. We have an email address that you can write to. Uh, That is hello at mobilecouch.co. We'd love to hear from you, but note that unless you say so, we will be mentioning stuff on the show that you write. If Possibly. you're one of the lucky ones. If you're one of the very the few lucky ones that, you know. So if everyone's listening to us in Overcast, does that mean that we, sh- we should leave these really strange pauses that can be edited out later? <laughs> <laughs> they won't even they won't even get that joke. Yeah. What joke? If you would like to talk to each of us individually, you can do that as well. Jake is on Twitter. Ben is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. Jake is J McMullen. That's J M A C M U L I N. And Ben is Ben Trengrove. That's B E N T R E N G R O V E. And I am Jelly Bean Soup. That's it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to all of our new listeners. Thank you for trying us out. We hope that you have enjoyed possibly the second or third episode that you have listened to. Thanks for listening to the whole episode. Yeah. Thanks for getting all the way to this point. They've probably hung up by now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've, <laughs> hung up. They've all hung up. Yeah. Everyone oh. listens. It's like a dial-in boop. service. So now what around. we need to have is like an Easter egg at the end. Have you ever noticed that the Pinterest icon and the Park Mobile icon are disturbingly similar? No. I, I don't have either of those apps. I haven't got either of those apps either. Great. I happen to have them next to each other and this it's is a, freaking this is me This is a great out. Easter egg. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, good. Yep, cool. Hmm. I'm so glad that we, we've, uh, we, we got to that 
point. Aren't you got? Isn't everybody glad that they listened all the way to the end so they could hear yes. Jake's weird comments? <laughs> um, I've got another question as well. This is a hypothetical. Okay. Imagine um, there was a subscription audio service that had an app. Yes. Okay. Imagine you could pay for a subscription to the audio service. Yes. Right. You could either pay through the app. Yes. And it was like a certain price. Mm-hmm. Or you could pay through their website. Yep. And it was cheaper. Right. But the app never told you about the option to pay through the website because it's not allowed to. Yes. Would you be really cranky at having paid a potentially higher subscription to that service through the app? Why is the price higher through the app? To account for the 30% that Apple takes. Nameless company takes. This is a hypothetical. Yes, this is a hypothetical. (laughs) Apple's allowed to be the non-hypothetical part of my (laughs) hypothetical. The audio service is the hypothetical one. I I don't know. Like... So audio do exactly this. So we could even stop talking hypothetically and say, would it piss you off if you'd subscribed to audio in their app and been paying more than you had to because you could have got the same subscription through their website for less? I don't listen to streaming music services. This is a hypothetical. Pretend that you did. Oh, okay. Pretend that I did. Okay. Let me get in the... Okay. I, I listen to streaming music services. Uh, I'm paying more than I, I probably should and it's kind of pissing me off. It is kind of a scene. Mm. I think it would too. Mm. I mean, really, it probably shouldn't because it's no different to the real world where you should shop around. Yeah. But the fact that... I'm with him. But it still probably would annoy me. It's kind of a crappy situation. It is a crappy but, situation. That, and and audio can't do anything about it, really, other than well, not allow you to subscribe through the app. Which right. But the then they still couldn't becomes, tell you about the web. Like then, yeah. then you're in the situation that, say, Audible are in or... um. What's that comic book app? Kindle? Uh, Comixology. Comixology oh, right. or Kindle. All the same. Kindle where like you've got the app and you don't know how to get stuff into it because they can't link off to the place you can actually pay for things. Yeah. It's like the price of having a link to allow you to pay for something is charging a premium over having that same thing available elsewhere cheaper. It's a quandary. Let us know what you think. This mm. can be the this can be like the this thought is, of the week. This is the Easter egg, yeah. This is the homework. This is the thought of the week, which is something that this is a Forbes new is doing. I think. Oh, Everybody's I thought of Forbes. They always do thought of the day. I oh, thought yeah. of the day. Well, it's just we, a way to show you ads. We've, we've yeah okay. Well, we've got we've got thought of the fortnight. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I want to know if anyone is an audio to subscriber and didn't realize you could get it cheaper through the website. Are you now really cranky, or are you happy to pay a premium to subscribe through the app because it's easier? That's what I want to know. 30%. Is it 30% easier? I think it's more. No, 30% more expensive. No, but is it 30% easier? I think so. I think it's probably 100% easier. Mm. So maybe you're paying for the 100%. So it's actually a discount. So you're (laughs) essentially. (laughs) Personally, I think I would feel. I, I think I would feel better about having the option to pay through the app in audio. Uh, because I've had the opposite experience. I've literally spent like maybe, I don't know, 15 minutes trying to figure out how to get audiobooks into the Audible app. Yep. And like I understand the App Store and all the rules. I download the Audible app and I'm like, where the crap is the get an audiobook button? And it's not in there because they can't link out to their store because they want you to buy it through their website so they don't have to give Apple 30%. And it like literally took me 15 minutes. I'm like, and then I eventually realized I felt like such an idiot. 
and I was so hmm. cranky. I think I'd rather have paid thirty percent more. It's it's one of these it's one of these things where it's a kind of a a um it's a war between whether or not Apple actually wants their platform to be easy to use, air quotes, easy to use. Oh, they do. Or or whether they want to make money from a, from the service, right? And so there's this kind of oh no, why is there? Inst- a, they, why do they have to choose between the two? Can't they have both? Well, that's what they're hoping they've well, that's, done. That's what they're hoping that they've done. That yeah. because it's it's easy to use to just have a have an in app purchase. Uh, but then they also make money from it. Like that's that's their thinking that they've done that. But in reality, because the thirty percent is so high, when you're talking about like a bunch of comic books or a bunch of audio products, yeah, it's all this sort of reselling content where the rights holders get a cut because if you're the reseller you've got to pay most of the royalties to the whoever owns the rights then you've got to pay a cut to the store that you're selling it through yeah and then there's nothing left but i don't think there's anything i don't i don't think any real world stores take 30 percent of of markup on stuff Yes, they do. <laughs> well, no, actually, ben, no. Yeah, ben no, would you disagree are, with you. You are seen. correct in in certain situations, but like, have you ever bought a USB cable? See, <laughs> this I know about because I used to work in this yeah, retail section. Yes, USB cables and accessories like that are massively like like they're marked so up. cheap, and then they're marked up by like in some hundreds cases hundreds of percent. Yeah, like, they're like quadruple cost price. Yeah, so like do, so do, much do more. Do customers that buy these USB cables feel resentful that they could have got the same cable online for half the price? Well, they can. That's that's my point before. They should have shopped, shopped around. around, right? Mm. It's just that's what I mean. I don't. And, know. and I suppose people, some people know that, and they're just like, you know what? It's easier for me to just go to my local shop. It's there. Sometimes you, and you can ask as well. And you can just take it straight home, just use it. Just use it then and there. You don't have to mess around. See, with this some... is the thing that I've got with like Lego at the moment. It's so like it's I can go down to Big Dub or whatever. I'm using names of shops that don't exist in other um, parts Walmart. of the world. Walmart, yes. Yeah. Or Well, see, it doesn't it doesn't apply to Americans. This is what annoys me so much. They can't do it? Well, the thing is is that I could go I can go down to like my local store and I can try to buy Lego. For starters, here in Australia, we have a limited uh, range that is released. We don't get all of the sets that are available. And then don't even get then, me started on different no, no, no. geographical then, regions and getting different products. On top of that, right? On top of that, I can buy a set here that uh, the one of the if I buy a set here that is like seventy dollars, I can buy that from like if I was in America. I would buy that for less than half the price. Mm. And it's really hard to get it shipped in any other way. I've ma- managed to get to the point on Amazon where I can get it shipped nice and cheap so I can buy a set. There's a set down at, at my local store at the moment that is $79, I think. I can buy it on Amazon for 50 shipping included. There you go. Mm. But that annoys me. So, uh, yeah, thanks everybody for listening <laughs> and uh, we will see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.